So I will go this morning um, through a short Father's Day devotional, and then we will continue our study in the book of Philippians. So we observe and we honor fathers this day, not because the world or the culture dictates it, but because fatherhood is something that is honored by God. As a matter of fact, God identifies himself as our heavenly father. And that's why it's the biblical role that God values, fatherhood. From the very, the very early manuscripts of the Old Testament, we are given a command. And that is to honor our father and our mother. That command is one that comes with a promise. If we honor our father and our mother, it says that our days will be long in the land that the Lord is giving us. My brothers and sisters, for us in this day to honor our fathers is not a suggestion. That is a command directly from God. Some of us were blessed to have a father that loved us, raised us, cared for us. And we may not have any doubt that our earthly father loves us. Or loved us if that father happens not to be with us anymore on this earth. However, in a broken world, this is not the case with many sons and daughters when it comes to the relationship with their fathers. So how do we honor a father when he has dishonored his role as a father? This is definitely a rough call. And in a fallen and broken world, it's difficult because we're still not exempt from the command that God has given us to honor our fathers. In doing so, ultimately, the reason why we are to honor our fathers is because in doing so, we will honor our Heavenly Father. The commands that God gives us are ultimately to honor Him. For Him to be honored and glorified through the commands that He gives us. So to those of us that are sons and daughters this day, I tell you, honor your father. Pray for your father. Forgive your father. For they are not perfect. And they are sinners just like you are. Just like you need forgiveness. Your fathers also need God's forgiveness. To those of us that are fathers, let us not waste our fatherhood. Whether you are a father of young children, such as in my case, or whether you're a father that already has grown children, don't waste your fatherhood. Step up. Be a man. Be a godly man. You will give an account to God about what you did with your role as a father. Turn your life to Christ. Repent daily so that you can love your children in the Lord. Instruct your children in the Lord. Especially in a culture and a world that has gone crazy. Which is why I say that honoring fathers this day and every day is the opposite of what the world tells you. The world tells you this very day 
that we need to deconstruct the nuclear family. Whole movements have been made on that premise. We are told that the roles of father and mother are to be blurred, if not erased, altogether. This is what the world is telling us. Not only that, but through laws and institutions, these types of ideologies want to raise our kids with those types of values so that our kids do not honor their fathers. So that kids would look to something else other than ultimately a heavenly father. We are here this day to be reminded then that the world needs strong men in the faith who love Jesus so that they can love their families and lead their homes in a way that their love for Jesus can be seen by everyone. When you do that as a father, as a family, you will face opposition and persecution. In order to do that, you cannot do that alone. You need to submit yourself to God through Christ in order to stand against all the schemes of the world. So then, to all those that have good early fathers, let us be thankful that is God's grace being manifested in our lives. If your father is still with us, love your dad. Hug him. Tell him that you appreciate him. To those that have had an absent father, perhaps an abusive father, hurtful father, know this. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who hears you, who is not abandoning you in your hurt. He knows your every struggle and understands your pain. And He doesn't leave you there. Your Heavenly Father will adopt you into His kingdom. So run to Him. Cry out to Him. Abba, Father, Daddy. And you have the promise that your Heavenly Father will turn no one away that comes to him. You can take that promise to the bank. May I please ask all the fathers that are here present to stand so we can pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are the Father of mercy. Knowing that you are a God who loves his children. We thank you, Lord, because you've given us you've given us the command to honor fathers. You've given us the precepts and the instruction of how to be good fathers. We pray for these men here today, Lord, so that you would help us to be godly men to be godly fathers, to be godly husbands, so that we can be bold in our repentance and turning to you, and that we may not waste our fatherhood, that we can turn to you daily to depend on you so that, that we can be good fathers. And Lord, this morning as we study the book of Philippians, 
may you remind us, may you teach us, may you convict us through your Holy Spirit on how to strive in this life together in the gospel, in unity, as a church family and as individual families. We ask this in Jesus' name. Please remain standing. And will the rest of the congregation, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Let us turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The perfect and inerrant word of God reads I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintage to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also. True companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So we come this morning to the passage in Philippians in which the Apostle Paul is now giving some practical applications of everything that he's taught them so far. I've titled the sermon, Striving in Unity, meaning Striving in Gospel Unity. And the subtitle to that, I would say, is that striving in unity is a sign of spiritual maturity. When we strive together as a family of God, as a church, and even within our families, leaders in our homes, when we are striving in unity, it is a sign of spiritual maturity. So what does that mean? Well, we have seen how Paul has told us to stand firm in the faith, in the convictions that the Word of God gives us, and that in doing so, we must live according to the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we must see things through a biblical lens so that we can live according to it. And why is it that we insist so much in viewing the world, viewing our lives through a biblical worldview? The reason we stand on that, the reason we die on that hill is because we have the conviction that no other standard will do. No other standard of living will please God. We can only be assured that God is going to be pleased if we live according to His Word. If we think according to His Word. If we act according to His Word. Do we do it perfectly? I, I fail daily. However, we use Scripture as an instruction that guides us and pulls us back. We are reminded in 2 Timothy 3.16 of this truth. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here we are reminded that where we look to to get our instruction is the scripture. We will see here that Paul is going to lay out an application that is present in the church of Philippi 
to which they can apply what Paul has been teaching them. If we're remembering verse 1, which we spoke about last week, Paul instructed the Philippians that in light of what he has told them to look to Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, to trust in Jesus for his righteousness, they are to stand firm in the Lord. How can standing firm then in the Lord be applied practically within the church of Philippi and then within us as a local church, as a local congregation, as Christians? How can standing firm be applied? What does that look like practically? Well, we will see today that standing firm in the Lord requires being united in the local church where the work of God is being carried out. So a key concept this morning is that a sign that a church and its members are standing firm in the Lord is that we will be able to see, to experience church unity. That as we strive, as we struggle together in this walk of being Christians, we will be unified in the gospel. And thus, standing firm in the Lord. This specifically will be evident in how a church handles conflict. Will there be conflict in the church? You bet. A good friend of mine often says that in order to mess things up, you only need two things. Doesn't matter what it is. A club, a school, a church. If you have people, give it enough time, something's going to grow. That's all you need, people and time. It's true because we are fallen. Because we are sinful. We are rebels. And even in the things of God, even in the work that we're doing for God, it's just a matter of time before we'll have disagreements amongst each other. So then, how do we, how do you see yourself handling the disagreement among your brothers and sisters? Amongst your family, if you are a believing household. How do we handle that disagreement? This morning, we're going to take a look at three main points of striving in unity. Mainly, is going to be striving in unity is going to consist of first, being of the same mind. We need to walk in accordance with each other. There's a standard we agree to, that's the gospel, now that it's walking according to the same mind. Secondly, when there's unity in the church, by implication, the church is involved. Unity in the gospel does not take place by us being alone. No such thing as striving in unity being alone. No such thing. And third, as we strive for unity in the church, we are reminded that there's an ultimate reward. We're not just doing this for the sake of doing it. There's an ultimate reward in striving in unity. So we're going to take a look at those three things. Being of the same mind, the church is involved, and ultimately, ultimately there's an everlasting reward. So let us get right in. First, striving in unity will be being of the same mind. Philippians 4.2, which is the first verse in our text here, reads, I entreat Aota and I entreat Sintish to agree in unity. The language that Paul uses here when he says, I entreat, that word is, I urge, I plead, 
basically I'm begging you. This is not a statement made just in passing. This is something that Paul says, pay attention here. Please, I implore you, I beg you to these two people, these two women, to agree in the Lord, to be of one mind, to be of one accord. Now, he doesn't say according to what the other is saying. He says, in the Lord. So, what do we know about this situation? We know that there's a disagreement of some type for which Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. Secondly, we know that the two women in disagreement are true believers. They have labored, they have strived together with Paul in the cause for the gospel. And their names are written in the book of life. We're talking about believers here. We're not talking about false converts. We're not talking about someone who's spreading a false doctrine. That's not what we're talking about. This is a disagreement amongst believers. And thirdly, because of what the context reads here, we can imply that the disagreement is not doctrinal in nature. There's not a crucial Christian doctrine at stake here. Why? Because Paul has been very quick to point those things out. As he called earlier in this letter, those that tried to pollute the gospel with works righteousness. Because they were saying, yes, you can believe in Jesus, but you also have to do all these other things in order to be a Christian. Paul immediately denounced them. He called them dogs. He says, don't listen to them. Separate from them. So therefore, we can imply that this disagreement is not a crucial doctrinal issue. It could have been a disagreement on how to run ministry, on how to allocate funds, on who to send out into mission. Who knows? It doesn't say. But it's not a crucial doctrinal issue. What we don't know is this. We don't know what the disagreement is exactly about or how long that agreement has been going through. Now, here's a potential critical observation which I'd like to address. Why does Paul call, up, call out only a conflict among women? Somebody could ask that, right? Like, yeah, you know, typical women are going to be fighting and it's emotional and they can't handle conflict. I've actually heard this type of criticism when it comes to scripture writing about women, right? I'd like to give you a warning. That type of thinking is not biblical. We are not to assume identity politics, which is a fairly modern, ungodly worldview, when we read the scriptures. We are not separated by different groups, different ethnicities, just different um, victim mentalities. That is foreign to scripture. That is nowhere scripture. If you want to talk about equality, God says, you are made in my image and you are all rebels and sinners before me. Nobody can do this thing. That's the equality that God talks about. So therefore, when we read such instances in Scripture, let us not immediately assume the worldview that we are surrounded these days with and then read that into the Scripture. However, just to remove this potential hurdle from our thinking, let us look have two quick examples of when conflict, which was greater conflict, but which we will see, 
that is called out in homosexuality among men. Right? Galatians 2, verses 11 and 13. It reads as follows. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See that? Conflict between the Apostle Paul and the great Apostle Peter. Paul rebuked Peter to his face in front of the others because he was being a hypocrite along with the rest of the Jews with him and even Barnabas was carried away by that hypocrisy. See that? We see that conflict then is not called out selectively. Scripture is full of examples where conflict between godly people is present because we are all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. Second example is in Acts 15, 37-39, which reads as follows. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. There was a sharp disagreement that arose between Paul and Barnabas. Both godly men. We know so in the Galatians example, that's an example where the doctrine of salvation is at stake. That's crucial. Either you become a Christian by faith in Christ alone, or you have to do something to gain a right standing with God. That's as, that's as crucial as it gets for Christianity. And Paul needed to rebuke Peter. In the example of the book of Acts that we just read, it seems that there's a difference of opinion in how to run an evangelistic ministry. Who's going to come with, with them according to the work that has been done? There was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. But nevertheless, as we read the following verses there in Acts 15, it is seen and it is shown that they still went away with the blessing of the brothers. And that as these two groups went out, the churches were blessed. See that? And it didn't take away that they had a sharp disagreement on how to run that evangelistic ministry. So now let us get back to our text. There's a disagreement in the Philippian church among two women who are active and participating members of the church. Imagine for a minute that we are reading here publicly a letter from a Christian leader that we admire. Let's say Dr. John MacArthur or Paul Washer has written an encouragement letter to our church and we're excited to read it and I'm here reading it to you guys. And when it's getting towards the end, he calls out two people by name. And he says, you and you, insert your names in there. He's like, get your act together. Reconcile. Right? Now, I feel a little bit 
embarrassed or shy that I'm being called out. But that is a reminder, my brothers and sisters, that within a church family, there is accountability. If there is conflict, it needs to be called out. It cannot remain in silence until it just builds and builds and builds and then blows up. That is not healthy. That is not biblical. We are accountable to each other. Now, in calling out conflict, in the way that Paul has called it out here, a modern reaction, according to our culture and how we are influenced by the world today, would likely look like this. Whoever's being called out can say, how dare you? That's my private matter. It's none of your business. I'm offended. Right? Very likely. That or a variation of that type of attitude. Versus how perhaps would a godly reaction look like? It might look like as us thinking, wow, God is using this me being called out because he loves me. Because God wants me to be reconciled to my brother, to my sister. And through that process, we are going to be built up and become stronger as a, as a church family. And God is going to get the glory for it. See that? A modern reaction versus a godly reaction. One is a reaction of pride. Another is a reaction of godly humility. So then let us ask ourselves, how is it that this admonition to agree in the Lord is the call to apply what Paul has written to them in this letter? And then how does it apply to us? Well, let us take a look at two examples of what Paul has already commanded the Philippians. First, let us look to Philippians 1.27. This is what Paul says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A little bit later, a few verses later, Philippians 2.2, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, this is the type of teaching, of admonition, of exhortation that Paul has given them thus far. With the example for them to look to Christ as the ultimate example of someone who was humble, of someone who was a servant. So how can that attitude be applied when there's conflict? What I think is relatively straightforward and honestly is easier said than done, right? If we are to submit to these principles when we have conflicts, specifically in the church amongst Christians or within our marriages, our homes, would the conflict be likely to go away? If we come with the spirit of humility, if we value and esteem the other person higher than ourselves, If we deny our wills and we are willing to listen, is that something that's going to help conflict resolution? But in our human nature, when the old man, the old woman creeps up, 
don't want to do that. We want to have our way, and we want to have our way right now. Now, let us be careful to say, yeah, you know what? There's one person I can think of right now that needs to be more humble when it comes to conflict resolution. My question is, what about you? My brother, my sister, how about you? So then, striving in unity involves an aspect of being of the same mind. Right? Being of the same mind. Agreeing with one another. Which leads us to our second point. When we are striving in unity, the church is involved, necessary. Let us read the first half of verse 3, Philippians 4 3. It says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So the word there, companion, is an interesting word. In the Greek, sisigas, which means literally yoke fellow. So Paul is saying, calling out you, a true companion, a true sincere yoke fellow, help them. So the concept of, of somebody who is yoked is someone who is joined together with another with the purpose of accomplishing a common task. You are yoked together. There's two observations here that I'd like to make. First is, who is Paul referring to exactly when he refers to this true, to this true companion, this yoke fellow? Amongst the commentaries that I read, some believe that there's actually somebody named Yophel. Sisyphus. Scripture often uses someone whose name fits the description of the role they play in the story of the Bible. For instance, Barnabas, son of encouragement, son of courage, like his was that something that God did by accident? Or was Barnabas really a son of encouragement? He was. He was with Paul, spreading the gospel, giving hope and encouragement to others. So it is very likely that when Paul says, you, yoke fellow, Sisyphus, help these women, that is an actual person. But the case can also be made that Paul is not referring to a specific person to help them, but he's referring more to each yoke fellow, to each person that is laboring with his women in the church. So then we can understand that whether Paul is referring to one person or to the congregation at large, this fits to everyone in the church. If we are striving together with our brothers and sisters in the gospel, we have a call to walk with our brothers and sisters in resolving conflict as we are able to help. Right? Not as us becoming involved in something that's not in our business or with the purpose of gossiping, but with the true intent to help. We have that call. Now, the word yoke fellow, a little bit more than that, that's a second observation. This is a very important biblical concept. Scripture talks about those that are being yoked together. As in two bulls, that are yoked together so that they can till the ground. 
Right? I, I remember seeing this in my grandfather's farm when I was a kid. When you are yoked together, in this case of these two bulls that are yoked together, they cannot succeed unless they are yoked and they agree to walk together. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to accomplish that. That is a very vivid example that the Bible talks about. It's, it's a concept in Scripture. Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Right? Another translation says, How can two walk together unless they agree? In the life of a Christian is a life of us being a yoke fellow, being yoked together with fellow believers in unity of the gospel. We cannot walk in unity in the gospel unless we have agreed. Otherwise, you go your way, I go my way. And there's no unity, and we will not accomplish the task at hand. A very important aspect of being yoked together, scripturally, is marriage. Being yoked together. It is why it's biblical to say that a Christian is only to marry another Christian. If you are a Christian single person, you have no business looking for a husband or a wife with someone that is not a Christian. Many years ago, before I was a Christian, and I first heard of this teaching, I thought, as usual, those Christians are just crazy. Like how close-minded, how foolish, how unloving. How can they not marry someone who's not a Christian? Later, you come to realize because they don't agree. How can they walk together? They don't agree. You want a recipe for disaster? That's a Christian, marry an unbeliever. See how that goes. I mean, even when we marry in the Lord, there's troubles enough. Imagine if you guys don't agree in the basic premises of life and conviction and faith. This is why 2 Corinthians 6.14 reminds us of the following. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Right? So if one is a true Christian, then Jesus is Lord. We submit to Jesus. We submit to His Word, to His teachings, to His church. We devote our lives entirely to being witnesses for Him, for His glory. We'll be willing to deny ourselves to suffer for the gospel. Can you ask a non-Christian to do that? That's foolishness. Not happening. Then, what do you think will happen if you marry someone who doesn't think the way you do? You are in for a trailer. I've seen it. Let us not be foolish. This is why scripture asks, going back to that question, how can two be yoked together? How can two walk together? Let's agree. It is a warning for us not to yoke ourselves with an unbeliever. Let us remember that. Now there is the other truth in scripture where if there is a couple who is married and one of them becomes a believer, right? That's related but separate topic, which we've talked about in the past. But basically the word of God says, stay with them, love them, serve them, 
Show them the love of Christ. Because you are yoked to them already. And by doing so, you may win them to the Lord by your conduct. So let us ask ourselves this morning then, am I a true yoke fellow? How am I doing in walking as a yoke fellow? First, within the family of God. And if you're married, how am I doing that with my spouse? Am I a true yoke fellow? Which leads to the third point. Is striving unity in that struggle, in that daily walk, in that daily fight, there's an ultimate reward. We're not just doing this for the sake of doing it. There's an ultimate reward. And Paul reminds us of that here. Philippians 4.3, the second part of it, it reads, this, this woman and this person who he's calling to help, it says, They all who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Here it is. Whose names are written in the book of life. How refreshing. That suffering, all that, all that spiritual battles, all those maybe even physical battles and challenges are not forever. But the reward is forever. That their names are written in the book of life. When they're in the Lord, when they are in the gospel, when they're striving together in the church, there's an ultimate we're working towards something. Not because we earn anything, but because we are called to be obedient in the Lord. We are reminded of the ultimate reward. So in spite of the conflict and the call for them to correct course and align in agreement, it is clear that these women have labored, have strived, have been yoke fellows of Paul in the church of Philippi, and their work is not overlooked. Paul recognizes them. These are women that are prominent in the church. They have an important role that they play in the church. Which is a reminder for us to never let us underestimate the contributions that women, being yoke fellows, have in the church. An observation that I have, and I've noticed this dynamic coming from a Hispanic culture and background, is that many times in the church, I've noticed that men tend to be passive. And I think it kind of carries over from the Hispanic tradition of Roman Catholicism, where there's an unspoken sentiment, and it is that, oh, the church thinks that's for, for, for women. Like, they do that. Like, us men, like, we're macho. We stay outside, we drink our beers, and we let the woman do the things of God. My brothers, my sisters, let it never be so. And many times the women step up because of the failure of men to be leaders. So this is a rebuke for the men first to recognize the value, the work, the input of women. And secondly, for us to lead in the church. To be peacemakers in the church. To be the ones who strive to reconcile in the church. 
so that we can follow the word of God in being men of faith who lead according to the word of God. We value and honor the work that our true yoke fellow women have in our ministry. Because we are fellow yokers with them. How can we walk together with them unless we are in agreement? Let us never forget that. So here in the ultimate comfort then, Paul says that their names are written in the book of life. Okay? What does that mean? Let us look to Revelation 20, verse 15. It says, And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then let us look to Luke 10, verse 20. It says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's it. An interchange of your names are recorded in heaven, your names are in the book of life. That is simply a way of describing the people that belong to God. God recognizes His people. And the way that in biblical times was understood when you're part of a community, when you're part of a population, like your name's written on there. Like when they take the census, you belong to that community. That's where you're from. So God says, I also have a book. And that book is called the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life? This is where the distinction comes. Namely, not everyone's name is written in that book. Right? That's universalism. That's heresy. Specifically, we just saw in one of the verses where God says that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life is going to be thrown into the flames. Eternal condemnation for not being in the family of God. So may our name be written in the book of life, not because of anything we do, but only by God's grace. Because of our faith in Christ alone, in the work that He has done alone for us. And when we come to Him, recognizing that we are debtors, that we are sinners, that we need to repent, that we need His forgiveness. He adopts us into His kingdom. We are His children, and our book, is, our name is written in the book of life. Let us remember that. So then, what can we conclude? We know this, that believers can and will have confidence. It's a fact of life. We're going to have comfort. And in order to stand firm in the gospel, within the church and to the outside world, we first need to be of one accord, of one mind. Now, let me just clarify real quick what we don't mean. What we don't mean is that we are going to be agreeing and being okay with our brothers and sisters being the same. That's not, we're not talking about that. This will be harmful to the person in sin and it will be harmful to the church if we don't call out a brother or sister who is in trespass and sin. So with that said then, how can we prepare ourselves to strive in unity, 
to strive in unity in the gospel as a church, as individual families. I would say there's three things. First, there has to be a spirit of humility with a desire to restore and reconcile to one another. Spirit of humility. The way we're built, our default position is not to be humble. It's not to be submissive and humility. That's not what we want to do. Those of us that are raising young kids, we see that out of the box. They do not come with this program. They come with the opposite. And sometimes as I see my kids being rebellious, I see that I'm also rebellious. In a more sophisticated way, granted, I'm still a rebel when the old man wants to creep back. And only by having a spirit of humility and asking Christ to strengthen is the only way that I can be humble and have a spirit of humility. Secondly, is by having submission to the Lord and to the local church. That's how we prepare ourselves for godly conflict resolution. Submissive, being submissive to the Word of God and to the church that He's given us. A non-submissive Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. A Christian is called to be a bond servant. It's called to be a slave. Someone who is in submission. Submission to what? To men? No. We're not in submission to men. We are primarily in submission to God, to His Word, to the church that He's given us. And then we submit to that church, to that authority. If our instinct, if our attitude is one of not to submit, let us ask God to use repentance. And then thirdly, a way we can prepare ourselves to strive in unity in times of conflict would be to remember that we value unity because it brings reconciliation. Unity brings reconciliation. And it reminds us that God has reconciled us to himself. God has reconciled us to himself. We love God because he loved us first. We forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. We humble ourselves because Jesus humbled himself to the point of humiliating himself, dying a brutal death on the cross, which we deserve. And he took the penalty for us, for our sins. Let us have a spirit of humility. Let us be submissive to the Lord and his church. And let us remember that unity brings reconciliation. And that reconciliation ultimately has been the reconciliation that God has given us in Christ. I asked myself then this morning, with in light of the message that we've heard then, how do I respond to conflict? How do I act in conflict within a setting of believers? Am I one who causes strife? Am I proud? Am I non-submissive? No, a, a word of caution. We can have those terrible attitudes of strife, not being submissive. 
And that doesn't necessarily show itself in an aggressive form. That can also be passive. It might be aggressive, and that will be easy for us to point out because we know, I know, brother, so and so. Chill. You gotta stop being so negative. Or you gotta stop being so harsh. You can also be the person who is passive. Not submissive, causes strife, does not want to reconcile, does not seek reconciliation. So may we ask the Lord for humility to be of one mind in the church so that we can become more and more into the image and full stature of Christ, as Ephesians 4 tells us. So that then we can contend for the faith once and for all given to the saints, which is the gospel of grace. We don't deserve it. But God is so gracious that He has given us reconciliation. He has given us His love, eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for your word is true, for your word is the well of water that we go to drink from that gives us everlasting life, that gives us wisdom, that gives us instruction, that gives us a rebuke to the ways in which we need to correct pathway. I pray that this morning you would give us a conviction to be those that want to strive in unity with our church family, with our individual families, so that we would be submissive to you, to your word, to your church, and that in reconciliation to each other, you would be glorified because you are worthy as our Heavenly Father. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.